Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Um, <coughs> I asked what sort of things you want to talk about. I remember two of them, but I can't remember the third. Uh, one, was, one was about monastic life, the other one was about daily life, and there was some, something else, wasn't there? Not me, not mine. Not me, not mine. Oh yeah, that's a killer, that is. <coughs> uh, well, let me start with uh, the daily life one. Uh, we'll we'll sort of tackle tomorrow but maybe just say a little uh, this evening uh, but just to <coughs> answer a question about monastic life um, when the Buddha left home he he entered a he entered a tradition <coughs> of his time uh, which um, seems to have been um, uh, had quite a long history maybe goes back even to the um, uh, the civilization on the Indus Valley because the, the Aryans came down from the Russian steppes and uh, either took some of their practices, yoga practices, uh, nobody knows really. But the idea of um, uh, leaving the ordinary worldly life and to go off and live in, in the forests and uh, practice these um, exercises for one reason or another <coughs> uh, was was well established by the time the Buddha came along, and um, it, it would seem that his age um, it was a bit like the hippies of the of the seventies. <laughs> so anybody and everybody was uh, was out there, and and when they when these ascetics turned up at parks, uh, crowds would I mean that crowds would would gather you know to ask all sorts of questions. Uh, it seemed to have been this sort of um, entertainment of the age, really, on the full moon, <laughs> in the bright full moon. Um, and so he was just joining a tradition, and the tradition simply said that um, you lived, you lived really close to nature, you know, in that sort of climate. Um, during the hot season, you might just live under a tree. I mean, they still do it. You still find ascetics out there doing that. Um, and then in the rainy season, you'd build yourself a hut from uh, branches and leaves, see? Uh, and in the, in the cold season, you'd make sure you get a bit more cloth to cover yourself with. So it was a very sort of uh, basic lifestyle. Um, and uh, the idea was that uh, they would go begging for food on arms round. It <coughs> uh, wasn't so much that you went and asked people, you would stand in silence, you see and then hopefully somebody would take pity. Uh, and the exchange was, of course, that people thought these were uh, spiritual people whom they could get advice from about their own lives, hmm? um, much like psychotherapists these days. And uh, so some of them were healers. So, so there was that sort of uh, exchange, you see, between them. And... Um, Many of them would teach lay people their, practi their practices. So uh, the Buddha entered into a particular um, tradition 
as opposed to that there were the Brahmins the Brahmins were really the priests in the sense that they officiated at um, these rituals they, t they, they could be landowners they were advisors to the king some of them very rich um, and the Buddha often talks about the true Brahmin sort of pulling their legs saying that the true Brahmin doesn't do that sort of thing <laughs> supposed to be supposed to be the spiritual leaders of society and uh, in his district in his part the Brahmins really hadn't uh, got to being the top dogs yet over towards what we now know as Calcutta uh, it was the Brahmins were at the top and then the kings and then the, the rulers uh, but where he lived the, the Brahmins hadn't quite ascended to that level and the kings still had the greater status in society so of course he belonged to that caste, he belonged to the, the ruling caste, the Kshatriya caste. So uh, when he went out to train, he basically took on those, um, those traditions, see? And um, within, the, within those times there were uh, people, uh, mainly men, was the women did join them, um, who would practice these absorption states and some of these... Um, mortification things so all this he sort of gathered and he reinterpreted it all when he uh, when he became when he when, after his own enlightenment his own awakening he then reinterpreted all this uh, in a slightly different way to make sense to his own understanding so uh, he begins you know he thinks he's going to um, thinks he, want, he wants to share this stuff so he goes out to teach and um, the story is that he meets this monk at he meets this ascetic, his name I've forgotten, on the road there. He's the one, and he says to, and the, the ascetic says to him, "Oh," and he says, "You know, you're bright. Your face is shining. You know, you're you're obviously well advanced. Who is your teacher?" You see, and the Buddha says, "You know, to the effect, I have no teacher. I am the fully liberated one. I am fully enlightened." And the man went, "Oh yeah," and then walked off. <laughs> so I think the Buddha. <laughs> Uh, sort of quickly realize that's not the way you get his message across by announcing his his status he then ends up with his own disciples his own companions rather uh, but um, uh, as his um, as his uh, fame grew you might say as he walked around giving his teachings people would ask him to join him and they you know to join him as an ascetic so his, his response was a passico, come and, come and have a try. So that's known as the first ordination. And after, he, after so many people had joined him, and many of them became uh, fully liberated as well, they established this sangha, see, community. And so then there came this taking of refuges, which is known as the second ordination, uh, where you take refuge in him as the teacher, the teaching he's giving, and the community around him, you see. And, uh, and then that became the lay ordination. Right? That, that's what became the lay ordination. When lay people wanted to take them as a teacher, they would take these refuges and precepts. Um, and then they came later on because monks uh, and nuns uh, had all sorts of misdemeanors. So then there were, uh, the ordination became more complicated in the sense that questions were asked. Um, certain things like you couldn't be in the service of the king, right? You couldn't be a criminal. You couldn't escape into the order <laughs> by being a criminal. Uh, you couldn't be ill, because what happened was uh, one of the great doctors of the day offered free um, medical care to to his order. You see, well, of course, people who are sick uh, purposefully join the order to get free treatment. 
so they made this rule that you couldn't do that so for the first uh, few years we can imagine that they basically uh, went uh, would stay with him to get his teachings and and to practice meditation and stuff then they would go by themselves and just by hearsay not having mobile phones they'd occasionally come across him they'd hear that he was over there he's over here so they'd go and search him out you see as it grew to uh, a bigger size uh, there came the establishment of monasteries and mainly for rainy seasons because during the rainy season um, it was difficult to move around for a start but also there was this uh, feeling that they shouldn't move around in case they uh, uh, accidentally trod on little creatures uh, remember they the Jains were also very powerful at that time who uh, whose teaching was that whether you meant it or not if you did harm like you stood around by mistake you still had bad bad karma coming towards you so there was a lot of uh, different teachings around karma and the meaning of karma so eventually he had these monasteries here and there and the the population grew and uh, it tended to remain fairly close to his teachings which was that anybody joined the monastery had two duties the duty to meditate and the duty to study the Dharma which meant mainly uh, reciting off by heart his teachings you see we have the product of that in all the scriptures now which for 500 years were just kept by word of mouth see? and um, there's a lovely little bit where the man called um, um, <laughs> yes old age is he old age isn't he? <laughs> I shouldn't know this uh, he's the monk who uh, he, uh, well, uh, well I'll tell the story and I'm sure Mario will remember his name <laughs> He's, a, he's an arahat, he becomes an arahat and he says to the Buddha what I'd like to do now is just show people uh, where to stay when they come to the monastery so it was said that uh, those people who are interested in meditation he would put in these quarters because they were meditating those who are interested in the Dharma, the teachings and, and memorization he put here those people who were interested in the Vinaya, the rule of the monks he put over here and the athletic monks he put over there meaning the people who messed about so <laughs> He would, people would come to the monastery especially late at night when, when it was dark to see this phenomena of light coming out from the end of his finger while he showed them where to go so <laughs> a bit like E.T. if you remember <laughs> the film <laughs> anyway he's, uh, he's quite a character because he, uh, he, asked, he also has to give talks to the nuns and the nuns complain that it's always the same talk <laughs> he just got good anyway when it finally comes to him to pass away he says to the Buddha it's time for me to go and the Buddha says oh, uh, when somebody says something like that to the Buddha he always says do as you think fit do what you think is right so he rose up into the air burst into a ball of flame and disappeared can you imagine that um, so uh, you can see there that the monastery had uh, certain, certain sections in it which were devoted to certain practices later on the monasteries entered into cities and becoming close to lay people meant there had to be a much more intimate reaction with them and so uh, there was much more service to do with lay people so the monasteries that you see way out in the in the in the jungles well there's not many jungles left now but way out in the countryside uh, they tend to be more specific in their practice so they're they're just meditating or they're mainly meditation as you come into the city uh, the monastery tends to become urban 
So you have monasteries specifically devoted to study, you see. And, and then you have a small uh, viharas, dwelling, vihara just means the dwelling place of a monk. Uh, there were so many on that side of India that the state Bihar is a corruption of the word vihara. So uh, you know, at one point there must have been a lot of them. And as they came into the city, they had to interact with lay people on a, a much more sort of um, a religious level. So there came the establishment of little rituals. Uh, people coming to take refuge and precepts, uh, sprinkling of water, <coughs> all those things that were slightly coming over from old Brahminical traditions. See? Like, for instance, the, the string that's tied around your wrist. Have you all, you know about that? Yeah, yeah? I'll offer you all that at the end. <laughs> that really goes back to the Brahmin string that they hold uh, across their uh, bodies, uh, connecting them to um, to Brahman, or the Brahma. So these days you have much the same pattern. You have monasteries which are very singular. Uh, if you go, for instance, to say some of the monasteries like Mitrigala in um, or yeah Mitrigala or um, that's in Sri Lanka, or you go to Wat Pananachat or the Ajahn Chah monasteries, they're all very separate huts and the monks just live by themselves, they meditate. And then they turn up for lunch, that's all. Turn up for, well, it's not, it's breakfast. Uh, it depends on the, um, on the tradition that they're in. So, for instance, if you, if you go up to northeast Thailand, you're out uh, with your bowl as soon as the light breaks, and then when you come back and you have your meal, mm, Food's often brought to the monastery by eight o'clock. You're finished, and that's it. You don't eat it again. And you might think, "Oh, God, it's terrible," but in fact, <laughs> it seems to work. What's that old adage about breakfast being like a king, mm -hmm. uh, lunch like a what is it, and then prince, uh, like a prince? That's right, like pauper. That's right. And I, I, to my surprise, I found it actually works. If you eat, if you eat a load in the morning, and it, you're not doing much during the day. Remember. You're just meditating and walking gently up and down. You've done your exercise, uh, wandering off to get this food, you see. Uh, then you find that that suffices. Other monasteries will give you breakfast and lunch. Um, and it's the same at Mitrigala. I mention Mitrigala because it's, uh, it's a Mahasi uh, monastery. These places tend to be exclusively for monks. And some uh, will have monks and nuns. Uh, so they tend to be really four order members but as you move into the city then you get this connection and uh, the Mahasi, the Mahasi Sayadaw was one of those monks of the last century who brought the monastic life directly into uh, uh, you know, the urban life he was actually invited and one of the interesting things about that was that the, uh, the Mahasi Centre in Rangoon is actually owned by lay people and that's really quite against tradition. Normally all the buildings and grounds that uh, monks live in are owned by them through a trust or some, some mechanism. But this was actually owned, is, is owned by lay people. And a lot of the Mahasi centers are owned like that. So uh, here we get uh, a slightly different uh, thing where before, um, before that, generally speaking, the idea was that lay people lived the good life and created good karma so that in this life they might be, be, uh, take on the spiritual life, right? And uh, the monks and nuns, they lived the spiritual life hoping to attain full liberation, okay? And this sort of changed uh, during the middle of the last century where 
the meditation techniques were taught directly to lay people with great success through the Mahasi, especially Mahasi, but also Ubakin and Goenka, uh, people like that. Uh, and the same was the same was beginning to happen in Thailand um, with uh, Ajahn Chah and people like that. So uh, the monasteries then became also places of meditation centers for lay people. So that's what you've got. You've got, uh, depending on what monastery or what tradition you belong to, you could find yourself in a, in a university. Right? So Peridinia, for instance, in uh, Sri Lanka, there's a lot of monks there. And basically they're academics. Okay? Um, there's, a, there's a sort of uh, mismatch between uh, the real academic life and meditation. Because if you do long meditation retreats, uh, you forget because memory is like a muscle if you don't keep exercising it it disappears you see so there was a story of an academic uh, monk who came down to the Mahasi Center and did uh, was you know uh, was taken by the technique really liked it went back to his study monastery and began teaching the monks how to do it and and they were drawn to it uh, and then the senior monks thought well no, this is no good so they kicked him out and stopped it because <laughs> Because it, sometimes it doesn't work, you see, if you want to really remember stuff. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, you get these meditation centers now. So the one I was at, Kandaboda, it had a throughput of a thousand people every year. But it also had a monastic sangha, you see, both, both nuns and, uh, and monks. And we were, we were devoted mainly to, well, entirely to uh, the meditation and the teachings around meditation. Nobody there was would have would you would have seen as a scholar or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then you get uh, all the viharas in cities, which uh, really are there uh, to service uh, lay people. So even if now if you go to London, there's a Chiswick vihara, which is the sort of biggest Sri Lankan vihara. Um, there's just a continual uh, throughput of lay people coming in, either to make offerings <coughs> or to seek blessings for an exam or uh, a pending birth or anything like that you see <laughs> so there's that there's that sort of connection you see and the monks there may or may not study may or may not meditate uh, lay people in the east are very happy for anybody to take the robe and just live the good life for them that's that's praiseworthy enough you see so uh, that's it see <laughs> there's not much <laughs> There's not much, much else going on. And uh, there's no, those of you who know about uh, Christian monasticism, uh, the ones who we say developed through Benedictine, uh, through um, St. Benedict rather than, say, St. Francis, uh, will know that there's a, a routine through the day, you know. But um, in his rule, in one of his writings, he always saw this as training and that eventually uh, the monk or nun would go by themselves, you see, and to seek solitude. That was the, the main idea. Um, have you seen that integrate silence? Have you seen that lovely? Have you not seen that? Oh, yeah. The yeah, the Carthusians in Switzerland, isn't it? French Switzerland? Yeah, on the border. On the border, isn't mm -hmm. it? Mm. That's really uh, very inspiring. Very challenging film. Very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> really challenged by film. Oh, right. Well, <laughs> he asked for 10 years, 13 years before the monks gave him permission to. Ah, well, yes. To, to film. That's right. Well, they thought about it for quite some time, that's right. <laughs> 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 well, they let anybody in. <laughs> so,
so uh, so basically that's the monastic life and uh, it's not uh, I remember somebody I remember this um, this woman asking Venerable Nyalaponika the Venerable Nyalaponika was a German monk a very very revered and very renowned he's the one who started the um, uh, uh, Buddhist what was it Buddhist the press uh, what's it called I say the Buddhist Publication Society in, in Kandy. His book, by the way, Heart of Buddhist Meditation, is still is still the cla- is still a classic, and definitely a good read. And uh, the woman said to him, because she she sort of often people think if you're a Buddhist, then you must be a monk or a nun, like this. That's the way they think. So she said, but well, what if everybody becomes a monk and a nun? You see, so he said. Don't worry, my dear. It won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, that's it. It's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle, and you're either drawn to it or not. You know, it's, there's nothing. Uh, e- I mean, uh, just be, uh, it's not the only uh, way to live a spiritual life. It's a, um, it's an institutional way. And what what makes an institution are the rules and customs. See? So uh, a lay person who really puts their you know their mind to developing spiritually uh, wouldn't wouldn't need such a tight you know um, rules and customs uh, to achieve that uh, but would simply have to guide their lives as best they can within daily life uh, with the feeling that they're moving they're moving forward see? and that uh, and that in a sense brings us to this uh, daily practice of it so uh, when the uh, the jewel, the jewel of the collection is the Satipatthana discourse. It's known as the jewel of the whole collection. And it, uh, the Buddha is giving instruction on how to establish this mindfulness, this awareness, this right awareness. And um, he's been to visit uh, a group of people called the Kurus who, live, uh, who lived uh, near modern Delhi. So he's traveling quite a bit. He's, he's traveling between sort of Delhi and all the way over to Varanasi and then up towards Nepal. You know, he's, he's always walking, uh, except in the rainy season, of course, when he stops hill. And uh, he gives them, he, he's there and he, and he gives his usual talks and stuff like that. And then he returns to visit them and he finds to his surprise they're actually doing what he said. And uh, it, it said that, for instance, there was no well talk, in other words, gossip around the well you have a, a bit of a gossip so he was taken by this and he actually delivers this this sermon this teaching to them and <clears throat> what is what this what the discourse is saying to uh, those lay people if you want to attain liberation as a lay person you know without going through all this ascetic business uh, this is the way to do it so um, uh, in that discourse uh, it's basically about the meditation practice we're doing and how to overcome these hindrances, everything we've talked about. But there's also a small section on daily life, which really is just mindfulness. It's just being with what you're doing. And when you read the scriptures, it's obviously been, um, uh, it's obviously been, um, what can we say, adjusted uh, by monks um, and nuns who were memorizing it because everything is skewed towards the monastic life but if he's giving it to lay people then he must have also talked about about cooking and washing and looking after babies and and the whole business of of how to bring your your mindfulness into daily life you see um i think the core uh, attitude is is service 
Mm, service. So uh, uh, whatever you're doing, you're doing for your own benefit. So the Buddha's clear about this. You're doing it for your own benefit. Huh? You're doing it for somebody else's benefit, or you're doing it for your benefit and somebody else's. Hmm? And if you cl- if you're clear about that, then uh, that this is going to be your attitude. And every time you come to a decision point, see, with, and there are many during the day, uh, you just stop for a moment and give yourself the right intention. See? So we've been doing it with food. Well, I hope so. Eh? Like you've been <laughs> in front of the food and you've said, this food is to nourish the body, full stop. Right? The fact that it tastes nice is uh, to be enjoyed, uh, but that's not why I'm eating. Right? I'm eating purposefully for the benefit of this body. Now, it doesn't mean to say that while you're eating, greed might not come in and you find yourself shoveling it in. But as soon as you do that, you might stop. You say, whoa, see, and you put the spoon down. <laughs> you say, stop, stop. And you breathe out and wait for it all to settle. And then you re-establish your right relationship to the food, you see. So you can see if you take that into daily life. Um, <clears throat> one of the uh, small, lovely incidences is when the, the Buddha turns up and there are three monks there, they're called the Anarudas, uh, as a group around the chief monk, Anaruda, who was, and there are three fully liberated monks living together, and he asks him, he says, how, how is it you live so peacefully together? And he says, well, um, what I say is, what if I put aside what I want to do and do what the others want to do? See? Now, that, that sort of works best when everybody's saying that. See? <laughs> if you say it and somebody else isn't saying it, then uh, you can be tended to be abused. So it has to be used with a certain wisdom. Uh, but fancy just waking up in the morning and saying, well, today I'll put aside what I want to do and do what others want to do. See? Not as an absolute, but as just a general attitude. So that any time you meet somebody... Anytime you go into a situation, even at work, there is that attitude of openness to find out, well, what do they want to do, right? You don't have to do what they want to do, but the attitude is there of, what do you want to do? You see what I mean? Now, normally speaking, when you do that and people actually uh, feel your sincerity, that uh, you are actually open to what they want to do, uh, they're usually open to what you want to do. <laughs> and after some negotiation, uh, there's some, there's usually a little bit of compromise, and you end up, and you end, and you end up all being happy. So um, that sense of openness, that sense of service. Um, now, again, just like in eating, you might start off with the right intention, uh, and then this other stuff creeps in. You find yourself uh, being anxious. You find yourself controlling. You see, and then as soon as you wake up from that you re-establish your right relationship. See? So uh, if you uh, think of service as, as a way of relating both to individuals and to people, uh, and that sense of openness to them, you see, uh, and knowing that you don't, have to, you don't have to do what they say, you're just open to their, it's like a suggestion, see? Um, the mindfulness, the mindfulness that we're practicing uh, really allows us to, uh, ma- you know, to try and maintain this awakeness during the day. Now, when we did that global awareness, where you are, 
aware of what's inside and what's outside you see so that it's not tight it's not tight around something now sometimes you have to be focused like if you're if you're adding up your bills you've definitely got to be focused if there's something specific that you are reading or studying or looking at or, or involved in then there is that that sense of focus you see but uh, if you don't watch it um, it's like this this other stuff creeps in and before you know it, it's getting tight it's getting obsessive and all that sort of stuff now one of the things that um, you can do is always set a time so you have either a little uh, timer so that it wakes you up every so often right it could be any time 20 minutes 40 minutes one hour <coughs> and that would be a moment where you you stop and you say you know like what's going on there's a you can download a mindfulness bell on your computer uh, which comes with the Thich Nhat Hanh people in Washington and uh, you can set it to whatever time you want you see so there you are on your you know emails and your Facebook and all that and so you get ding you see and you say oh hell with that and you push it away <laughs> 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 that's not what you're supposed to do it's like oh ding you see and you stop and you wait for three bells and then you carry on you see so um, that business of stopping every so often depending on what you're doing and where you are uh, is a really um, is a skillful thing to do because you catch yourself you see catch yourself at other times uh, when you feel a bit more relaxed when you don't have to focus so much on what you're doing uh, you know try to maintain that global awareness where you're also aware of what's happening in you so in conversation you see uh, often we we um, we lose contact with ourselves and we're and we get drawn into a conversation and um, if you keep in contact with yourself about your reactions to what's happening it's just like in the background uh, often it can stop you saying silly things and <laughs> getting caught up in in somebody else's problems and stuff like that see? so um, and then there comes just a basic routine you know just having a morning practice the importance of the morning practice is that it sets, it sets you in the right mode for the day. Even if you lose it, at least you've, you've, uh, you've reminded yourself in the morning that you want to maintain this, this sense of awakeness. See? So what do we mean by that? You see, We just mean that I'm aware of what I'm doing. Everything is, is deliberate. See? Uh, that I'm aware of, what, of the state of my heart, right? whether I'm in a depressed mood or an ex too excited I'm getting too excited about things and I'm 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 careful but you have to be you have to be careful with this that you're that you are careful with your words um, speech is is so easy to um, uh, to fall foul of you see the Buddha talks about kindly speech you see always kind speech so honest speech being honest and most important to me anyway at a suitable time so it's all right being kind and honest but you don't <laughs> you want to choose your moment so these these sort of factors help us to uh, just be a little uh, reticent about you know jumping in with with our talk you see it just uh, pulls us back I'll give you one uh, example that often happens to me which I think happens to a lot of people you know somebody might say to you um, um, oh, my, my garden's in a mess you know um, have you got any time to come and help me you, see? you say yes you say yes see? 
And then after you think, oh, I don't want to go there. Go, what am I doing? I'm busy. <laughs> now you're going to pull back. So you have to phone up and say, I'm not feeling very well. I've got <laughs> Suddenly somebody's called me. You see? And all you had to say was, um, you know, uh, uh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a bit later. I've just got to. I think there's something else on. So you give yourself a little break, you see, and then uh, when you make that decision, it's coming from from a good heart. And if you don't want to do it, we say, you know, say I haven't got the time or something, you know, or I just don't want to do it. <laughs> you have to be careful with friends. Huh? So uh, uh, it's just little things like that that um, just to be slightly aware of what you know uh, of that. Of, the, of, your, of, how, of how we get into uh, conversations. Now all these things, all these tricks, uh, there are many books on daily life, you can, you know, there are a dozen a penny now. Um, all these things at first feel slightly false, um, as though you're, you're forcing yourself, as though it's, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, as though, as though you're pretending. So, for instance, uh, you might start off by saying, well, look, uh, before I speak, I'll always, there'll always be a stop, right? Now, <clears throat> when, you, when you're in the mode of listening, right, and you're actually listening, there has to be a moment where you become proactive, where you've got to answer. Our problem is that while you're listening to somebody, you're already giving your answer, see? And that's where the conversation gets all jumbled up. But if I say to myself, well, I get in the habit of first of all listening, and then you find that when you've really listened, there's always a gap before you can actually speak, because you've got to change mode, right? You've got to become active. So <clears throat> when you when you practice, at first it feels false, it feels forced, you see. But that's always true of anything you do. Uh, when you want to get into a new habit, you have to go through this process of it feeling. Uh, practiced, of it feeling forced, of feeling false, you see. But then once it becomes habitual, it becomes spontaneous. See? Um, it's the same with metta, you see. At first you practice metta, and you might not feel like doing it, so it feels false, because we think that uh, goodwill has to be an emotional thing. So if, I, if, I'm, if I'm depressed, for instance, you know, feeling down in the dumps and whatnot, and somebody comes along and is really sort of happy, they just say they've got this job they always wanted. So I put on this happy face, oh, I'm so happy for you. And they say, I'm saying, no, I'm not. I bloody hate you. <laughs> then you think, oh, this is so false. I'm being so false. <laughs> but that's because you're identifying with this, with this down mood. You're not identifying with a party that really does want to rejoice in their goodwill, in their, in their good fortune. You see? So... Uh, at first it feels at first it feels false you see uh, there's a, a phrase fake it before you make it you, I'm sure you come across that you see so you've got to pretend to do it and then eventually it just becomes it becomes just natural becomes spontaneous you see so um, all these things that, that you read about they just take a little bit of effort you see keep reminding yourself you don't worry about forgetting it or not doing it, or getting it all jumbled up, you see. And when you get that judging mind come in, saying, well, you're useless, you'll never do this, you see. You note that as judging, see, you don't get involved in it, right? And you just keep reaffirming your right action. And after a while, you find your, you know, these behaviours begin to change towards the positive, you see. And that gives you more confidence. And the more confidence you have, the more, the more ease you feel about yourself, see. <clears throat> 
but even <coughs> even after even after you know years of training yourself uh, you know to respond uh, with kindness and all that uh, don't be surprised if suddenly you, fl you know you fly off the handle and, and go berserk because <laughs> that's because because those uh, those habits are always there you know and sometimes we we think that um, you know we don't suffer so much from that anymore until somebody presses the button and then and then we know oh heck we've got still more work to do you see I remember uh, my teacher said to me that you know he was very generally speaking a very peaceful very very kind man uh, Dr. Evadama and um, he always he would always say to me well I, I'm not tested see when I go to the station and um, and these people sh uh, make fun of me you know and all that sort of stuff um, that's when you want to see me see that then then you'll know how peaceful I am so it's a case of uh, just just gently gently pushing ourselves see? just a gentle push towards what we see as wholesome see? so uh, tomorrow we can uh, you know we'll see what questions there are be slightly more specific um, now there was, there was ah yes not self my goodness yeah that's um, right <laughs> uh, well there's first of all uh, in the discourse which um, his first it's known as the, it's known as the second ever discourse that he's given that he gave rather and in it all he says is um, uh, he talks about control well first of all you have to understand what they meant by the self in those times or the soul something something which was eternal it had it had to be everlasting it had to be in control and it had to be happy if you're in control if you're in total control of your existence you should be totally happy because huh? you can make yourself totally happy okay so the first thing he asks is um, have a look at what you're experiencing and just see what control you have so on the body for instance sure we can wave our arms about and take it here and there but on the essential stuff sickness old age sickness aging and death very little control see you can't grow taller you can't grow smaller you can't extend your arms you, you know it's like it's like you can't do any of these <laughs> so when you look at the body uh, sort of very little control as such when you go a bit deeper you find that actually you haven't a clue what's going on there I mean I think it's red corpuscles are now leaking out from the marrow of your bones through the bones into your bloodstream have you ever felt that have you any idea what your liver's doing now and even if you knew could you do anything about it <laughs> see so when you actually ask questions about what is it you know and can, can control about your body you find it's actually there's not much it's just surface stuff see then he asks the same about our perceptions uh, <clears throat> when you perceive something he's talking about uh, uh, you know the way we see things and hear things that's completely dependent on our uh, sense base uh, I mean you know if, if you're hard of hearing you're hard of hearing you're not going to hear very much you know he's going to find it difficult um, if you lose your sense of smell your taste tends to disappear so <clears throat> a lot of our perceptions are again based upon the body 
and also based upon our culture sometimes we can't uh, uh, you know we can't see things because we haven't got the the uh, the culture for it um, one of the things that happened to me when I went to um, Sri Lanka was I heard this barking and for some reason I hadn't associated this noise barking with any animals so and it was way up there up in the trees so I said to somebody what, what is that is it with the monkeys I said monkeys so <laughs> and I kept looking at these trees and they, well, where, where the heck are they see and they all and, and the Shrankin said well there they are see and I'm looking I cannot see them for the life of me and then suddenly I see one monkey in in the trees and of course once I've seen one I see them all there's a whole troop up there but for the life of me I couldn't see it at first so uh, you can see how uh, the way we're trained, the way we perceive things. Uh, for instance, you know, the, the uh, Eskimos, or I think that's not PC these days, it's Inuits. The Inuits uh, have something like, I don't know, what is it, 10, 15 languages for snow? Because they see the various types of snow, whereas for us, snow is snow. Huh? Then there's uh, feelings. Now, the word Vedana covers both the sensations in our bodies and the sensations caused in our bodies by our emotions, so feelings, feeling sensations. And uh, what we discover in meditation, isn't it? We don't have, we don't have much control over that either. Huh? You, can, you can generate uh, good feelings through, through the metta, but uh, in a sense you, they can't be sustained. Uh, they disappear, they arise and pass away. So we don't have much, uh, much control over those either. Um, then it comes to our sankara. So these sankara are our habits. Um, now this is where uh, we could have some control uh, through through our will, right? But we find that we've got, you know, we are creatures of habit, and and we're dragged along by our habits. And so you find that our control over habits can be quite minimal too. See. And then finally, there's consciousness. Now, consciousness is dependent on the psychophysical organism. So, if if that if that goes, you've got you've no control over it. I mean, the obvious time is sleep. So, uh, you lose you lose your awareness, or should we say, your awakenedness uh, in sleep. There's always some consciousness there. There's always some awareness, because else you wouldn't hear the alarm clock. See, it's sort of woken up by this little tapping on the eardrum. So that's his first argument. He says, well, if there is this soul, if there is this eternal thing, where is it? Where is it in your experience? See? And he's asking us to look at our experience and see, well, one of the, uh, one of the definitions of a soul is that it's in control of itself. See? Uh, the next thing is he points out this impermanence, which is just another way of saying control, that you can't control it. So he asks you to look at the body and our perceptions and our feelings, all these habits and even consciousness itself and see that they're all arising and passing away. So they're not eternal. See? So um, when he asks us to look like that, you see, he's not saying therefore that there is nothing, that all there is is this psychophysical organism and then there's nothing at all. So that would put him in the, in the category of materialists or annihilationists of his day. So he, he, uh, he's not saying that. 
On the other hand, he doesn't want to fall into the error of saying, well, there is a soul or a self, because if he does that, then he's pointing to something which has some sort of etern eternality about it, some sort of, uh, some sort of control, etc., etc., okay? So he's very careful not to fall into the error of a concept about what a soul is, hmm? and he's very careful not to go into a complete denial of it, okay? So therefore, um, he then uh, tries to point to something uh, which is there, which sounds very much like a soul, <laughs> and he says, for instance, there is that which is not born, it doesn't die, it's not conditioned, it's not created, okay? So that sounds a bit like a soul, doesn't it? Right? And then he says, there is a sphere, there's another way of saying it, there is a sphere. So, a sphere, as he uses it, we're translating the word ayatana, a sphere is a, uh, a, um, um, a type of experience which can't be mixed with another. So, there are six spheres of experience. That's the way you put it. So, one sphere is sight. The next sphere is hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the inner, the inner mind. Right? All these are called spheres. And you can't, in other words, you can't see through your nose. You can try, but you've got to do it. See? So these spheres are quite separate. So then he says that there is a sphere where there's just no phenomena. There's no moon, there's no sun, there's no coming, there's no going, there's no here, no there. And, but there is this sphere of experience. You see? And then finally there's um, a lovely, um, a lovely little uh, discourse, which, a lovely little phrase which happens twice in the scriptures. And uh, and the one I'm thinking of, it begins with somebody asking him, where do the four great elements uh, come to an end? In other words, uh, disappear, annihilate. Now the four great elements are earth, fire, water and air. And they stand for certain properties. So the earth is, is pressure, weight, fire, heat um, and lack of it of course. Water is cohesion. Um, elasticity hmm, and lack of it, stiffness <coughs> and the air is movement or lack of it hmm. and what they're describing is not uh, physics they're not, this, they're, not, they're, not, they're not the way that a physicist would describe what there is in the universe what they're describing is how we experience matter right? so when you go into your body or when you touch something you'll see it has one of those qualities or, or well all the four qualities will be there but some of them will be thank you preponderant <laughs> okay so the question is where does all that where where does all that just come to an end in other words where is there an end to all that or uh, in other words asking about annihilation and he says that's the wrong uh, that's the wrong question uh, he said the question ought to be where do these four elements not find a footing right so where is it that you don't find the world the phenomenal world and he says there is a consciousness right and I'll come back to this word consciousness in a minute there is a consciousness which is uh, not touched by any of the senses which is without boundary 
So you have to have phenomena to create boundary. Huh? And in all directions full of light. Full of, and just this is the end of suffering. Okay? So he's obviously talking about something within us which is um, not phenomenal. It doesn't belong to this uh, world of phenomena. And it cannot, it cannot be described as a self. Okay? It cannot be described as a self because when you are that consciousness you don't know it you can't be it cannot be an object to itself and you'll find this in Mahayana scriptures where they say things like the I cannot see itself it can't can it hmm? the tongue can't taste itself can you imagine if the tongue had a basic taste of curry it'd be a killer wouldn't it I mean it's alright if you're eating curry but I mean what about ice cream so it's the very fact that senses are empty see they are empty themselves of what they receive see so this awareness that we are exercising this this satipanya this intuitive intelligence which we're drawing out of it's confusion with the body hmm? confusion with confusion meaning together hmm? confusion with emotions so when we I am see every time you say I am you've got to say who the who's <laughs> see you say I am angry who's angry see? Uh, with thought especially yeah very quickly we you know we are the thinker so we're drawing this quality this uh, this intuitive uh, awareness out from that to become the observer okay so when you're the observer, the Buddha says, you're in the presence of Nibbana. You're actually in the presence of, of, your, of the ultimate state. But we can't see it, you see. It's right in front of us and we can't see it. And what we actually feel ourselves is to be the observer, correct? To be the feeler. Yeah? You should all be nod nodding vigorously. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> see? And the double bind is, you see, how do you get out of that? Because every time you want to get rid of that sense of self, another self appears to get rid of it. So you're in an eternal double bind going all the way back. See? So <clears throat> the Buddha's instructions are, you see, to keep averting away from that sense of self. That's the delusion. That's the first object we make, you see? Averting yourself to actually what it is you're experiencing. You see? Because that's only a concept in the mind. It also has a mirror image in the heart as a sense of presence. Yeah? So often that's described by people as their soul, their presence, but actually it still belongs to the world of phenomena because it's a feeling. And if you have a self-image, like the observer, that must also still belong to the world of phenomena, to the world of, of uh, feeling, perception, etc. So it's by bypassing that, keeping our attention on what it is we're experiencing as a rising and passing away, see, not me, not mine, that there comes the experience of who we really are. Now the Buddha referred to himself as the Tathagata, which means the one who's transcended. So there is within us this Buddha nature, this intuitive awareness, uh, you'll find it referred to in, in various ways, and really to experience that in itself is our aim because once that's known the path leading to the end of suffering is open wide that's what it said 
once you once you know that, then it's you can't know. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, it's it, now that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because in your meditation, uh, this intuitive awareness we're exercising, and we're looking at these specific qualities of impermanence, of the role of desire, and of that and of that seeing of not know, not me, not mine. You see, something distant. Um, when it sees something, right, the insight, the actual insight is immediate. There's no thought involved. You either see it or you don't see it. Okay? But then it has to tell itself what it's just seen. And that's where the mind comes in. The mind has to be used, the intellect is used to refer back to itself what it's just observed. That's why often, some, some of you will have experienced it, but often in meditation, a line will come up. Um, just out of the blue, some, some insight, you see. There's one beautiful one by uh, a teacher called Ajahn Mahabua, who died recently. And um, it's the, if you get hold of his book called The Heart, Straight from the Heart, these are really beautiful talks. Although you have to get into, the, into his way of speaking. And um, there's, uh, he's meditating, meditating, and there just comes this line, just out of the blue, you see. Um, wherever, if I can remember it rightly, wherever there arises a sense of a self, that is the beginning of another level of existence, of another level of becoming. See? Now, <clears throat> what he's saying there is, as soon as the I appears, there's a process happens. And if that I, because of the I, of the delusion of I, there's always going to be some dissatisfaction involved. Because this I is always seeking real happiness in the sensual world, and it won't deliver. See? And uh, with that insight, he, he seems as though he, he, really, he really moved. Now that, that came from this intuitive intelligence telling itself what it's just seen. It happens to us in ordinary daily life when suddenly you say something amazingly wise and you wonder where it came from. Has it happened? Yes. No. <laughs> you suddenly find yourself giving advice to somebody and you wonder where, how the heck you came across that. So, um, it's one of the more tricky teachings, mainly made tricky because of the books written on it. Everybody, worth, you know, any academic worth his salt writes about not self. And it just confuses it. Because it's not, it's not actually a philosophy. It's, not a, it's, it's, um, it's a methodology to make us discover what's real. That's all. Okay. And when it came to questions about a soul, you see, there's, um, there's a lovely one where this man Vachagota comes up. And he's, uh, he's completely confused. And he, he, he goes to Buddha and he says, now come on, is there a soul or isn't there, you see? <laughs> he's obviously had discussions with this and that, and he's had discussions with the Buddha, and he's finally fed up, you see. And he says, look, come on, I want to know, is there a soul or isn't there? And the Buddha's silent, you see. Uh, so he goes away then, you see, and, and uh, Ananda, who's with the Buddha, says, why didn't you ask him? He says, well, if I'd have said there is not a soul, he would have gone around thinking that I would have been put into the camp of the annihilationists. 
if I said there was a soul I'd have been put in the camp of the eternalists right but I didn't tell him that because if I'd have said to him there was no soul he would have gone away confused saying to himself once I had a soul and now I don't have one <laughs> so with all these questions he, he, he kept silent uh, one of the regular questions was known as the quadrilemma so we have a dilemma they had a quadrilemma and the quadrilemma was put as did the Tathagata upon death did he continue to exist did he annihilate did he both exist and annihilate or did he neither exist nor, nor annihilate <laughs> I mean you can't get round that one you see and of course uh, he kept silent you see he wouldn't he wouldn't go into metaphysics see because as soon as you get into metaphysics well it it's a, you get into all sorts of mess so uh, <clears throat> I don't know whether that's been as clear at the problem or it's <laughs> made even more confused so I can only hope my words have been of some assistance may you by your practice uh, deliver yourself from all these confusions and arrive at that wonderful place of Nibbana sooner rather than later Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.